We have someone in our congregation who is exceptionally happy this morning. And I'm pretty sure none of you guys are going to be surprised when I tell you this name, Gerald Andre. I mean, Brother Gerald has been happy all morning, man. It's, it's great to see your smiling face, brother. Amen. Amen. Um, very thankful for you guys. Um, those of you who are members of our local congregation, welcome as we are here to open up the Word of God and to proclaim the Word of God. If you're a guest, know this, that we, um, we want you to, to know more about our church. If you want to find out more information about our church, speak to me or any of the leaders or go on our website and we would love to help navigate you in this ministry. With this said, we are walking through 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 23, verses 1 through 23. Nate Saint, who was one of the missionaries who were killed by the Orca Indians, right? This is what he mentioned, I think is very important for us to observe. He once said that his life did not change until he came to grips with this idea, and this is the idea. Obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. Obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God gave Saul a command. But Saul obeyed this command partially. You notice it. As we're reading through it, we see that Saul obeyed God's command partially. And in chapter 13, Saul disobeyed God. When God said to Saul to go and, 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 and to wait at Gilgal and to wait for Samuel, but yet he didn't wait for Samuel. What did he do? He sacrificed the animals before Samuel got there. So we, we have this idea about Saul. Saul is consistently disobeying God, consistently disobeying God. Friends, coming closer, and I want you to write this down. Please pay close attention to this. When God puts a period, do not change it to a question mark. When God puts a period, do not change it to a question mark. And this is exactly was the folly of Saul, the pitfall of Saul. When God put a period, he wanted to change it to a question mark. When God have uh, 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 imperative commands in his scriptures, we must follow it and not change it for our own good. This morning, I want us to focus on three points within this sermon. What are the points? One, God's commands or God's command. We see this in verses one through three. Two, Saul's disobedience. We see this in verses four through nine and 12 through 25, and three, God's regret. We see this in, in verses 10 through 11. Now, before we dive into the text, I do want to mention this to you. There are two problematic passages of Scripture in this pericope, in chapter 15. Two very problematic passages of Scripture. One is the fact that God said to Saul to go and kill, wipe out the Amalekites. Wipe them out. Women, children, infants, and animals. And I'm saying this to you, and I, I am, I'm still like, okay, God, God, why would you do this? Why would you ask 
your people to do this? Is this a problem with God's attributes and God's character? Because we know that God is a loving, merciful, caring God. Why would God call for Saul to kill women and children and infants? Are they not innocent based on how we observe things? And I'll answer this question for us, right? The second problematic issue here is the fact that it mentioned that God regrets. He regret that he made Saul king. Now, I don't know about you, to regret something, and as a matter of fact, the Hebrew word here is the word repent, right? So it's not a repentance of turning away from sin. It's basically giving you the idea of a change of mind. Does God change his mind? Can God change his mind? If God can regret something, then there is a major issue. How can he be sovereign and all-knowing? If God can regret, there's no way possible he can be sovereign and all-knowing. So, so please, I just want to whet, whet your appetite, and I want you to start thinking with me. I want to engage your minds. Perhaps you, you have asked these questions as Miss Carey read through the text, and maybe as you have read through the text, you see those two problematic issues, and you're saying, okay, God, speak to me, God. Help me understand this, God. So, so I pray that I can, I can help you understand these two problematic issues. So with that said, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need all of the presumptions that you have, presuppositions that you have, that you could put that aside, and then you can ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. Please listen to the Word of God and ask yourself this, what are the implications and application from this text? Because there is great application here for us. This is about the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the mercy of God. This is about God. So we need to know more about him, right? So join me as I pray for us that God will lead us and help us understand more about his word. Father, we are here before you. And God, as the author, uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah uh, chapter 55, and he talks about that that we do not understand the mind of God, the thoughts of God are way higher than our thoughts. And God, we are infinite people who do not know much, but God, we want to know you, the creator of this universe, the most powerful being in this world. And God, we, we are asking that you could illuminate our minds to cause us to know you deeply and to obey you, O oh Lord, to fall in love with you. Let us stop playing these games where we pretend to be Christians and we do all the Christian lingos and God, yet we are not obeying you, God. And as you said to, to Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. God, this is the heart of Christianity is to obey you, to follow you. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't tell them to, to have sacrifices for the Lord, but he says to follow me, follow me. And as Christians, when he calls us into this Christian life, he calls us to follow him, to be obedient to him. So God, I pray that we can do this. Teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not and give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people said, amen, amen. Let's look at the first point here. 
God's command. God's command. So chapter 15 is a very pivotal account in 1 Samuel. Very pivotal. Because what it does here, it closes the book on Saul's kingship. But then it opens the book on David's kingship. But why would God close the book on Saul's kingship? Because of Saul's disobedience. Saul is very disobedient to the Lord. Now listen to me very carefully, and I think this is important for us to observe. At the very start of the chapter, the emphasis here is to obey the Lord. This is what Samuel said to Saul, that God has anointed you to do what? To listen to him. Follow with me and see for yourself. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Saul did not obey the word of God. We are given the commands here, right? Listen to the word of God. And what is the command here for, for Saul to obey? And we see it in verses 2 through 3. To go and to destroy the Amalekites. Destroy everything. Now, here is the difficulty for us here. As I mentioned earlier on, this involved women and children, infants, goats, every single animal completely annihilate. This is complete annihilation. So, so here are a few questions we need to ask ourselves. Is the God of the Bible like the God of Islam who commands jihad? Is he? Is God saying to you right now, if anyone comes against you, go ahead and kill them. Wipe them out. Wipe out the entire family. Wipe out the entire family tree. Is God a genocidal God? We have to ask this question as we're reading this. Is God's justice perverted? And here's another good question as I'm thinking about this. Is God like a toddler who throws this tempered tantrum, right? You got me mad, so I'm wiping you out. Is, is God acting this way, angry with his emotions all over the place? If you get him mad, God's going to destroy you. And friends, no, no, he's not a genocidal God. He's not asking for us to do holy war. God, God, is, God is not perverted in his justice. What is God doing here? The Bible is true about God, that God is loving, kind, merciful, just, and wrathful. He, he is all of these things, but why would he allow something like that to happen? Well, let me try to make sense of it for you. The first thing we need to do is to understand the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites were very, very violent people. They were the group of people when the Israelites were actually traveling through the wilderness and going into the promised land, they attacked the Israelites, killing women and children, completely attacking them, killing hundreds of them. And they continued to attack the Israelites throughout generations. They were constantly going against the people of God to completely wipe them out. It, it, it was a sense of the Amalekites saying to themselves, we don't like these people because of what God is doing for them. So they attacked the Israelites. So much so that our God mentioned in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, if you want some context, Deuteronomy chapter 25, 
verses 17 through 19, that God said to his people that he would rescue them from the Amalekites. And then he will never forget what they have done. The Amalekites here are sinners before God. They are the kind of people that you must observe. So much so that during the the, uh, Jewish concentration camp, they actually looked at the Nazis and say that they were the modern Amalekites. This is how we must observe these people here. They are violent. They are ruthless. They are against God. They are against God's people. And their entire being is to annihilate God's people. So much so, five centuries later, there is another Amalekite, Haman. The Agite, remember him in Esther. What did Haman want to do? He wanted to what? Completely annihilate the Jews. So we see five centuries later that Haman is still continuing the work of his people. This is why God actually said to them, annihilate, completely destroy. Why? Why? Because they're against me. They're against my people. They're against my glory. They're against what I am for. These are not innocent people, as you would think. God is not perverted in his justice. We are. We think we have the mind of God to see what is right and what is wrong. No, God is the final standard. And if we put ourselves in this situation, this is exactly what happens with hell. God's final justice will be, if you do not believe in him, you will spend eternity in hell. This is not something we laugh about and we feel good about. This is something that we say to ourselves, oh God, have mercy on the hearts and lives of people. This is why for us that we know that hell is real, that we pray for our lost friends and lost family members and lost neighbors. This is not a reason for us to feel good about ourselves. This is a reason to say we need to share the gospel even more. Because people are dying and separated from God and will experience the wrath of God. They will. What else can we understand here? Listen, this this is not a war of conquests. God is saying, you know, I want this property for my people, so so go to the Amalekites and and destroy them, and you can stay where they need to where they were staying. No, 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 no. This is a holy war. This is a holy war. This is why God said to Saul, "Do not take anything. Do not take anything." We have examples of this holy war as we look at. In Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, do you remember this? Sodom and Gomorrah, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because of the sin. We also have Jericho, that God destroyed everything. And the one person who took something was Achan. God destroyed him. Why? Because of God's judgment on Jericho, of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And here, God's judgment on the Amalekites. But you know what's amazing, friends? This this amazes me. Even in God's justice, there is mercy. Coming closer and listen to this. Even in God's justice, there is mercy. Even in this 
context of scripture, the Amalekites and the Kenites, right? The Kenites are with them. And then Saul is going and Saul is saying, look, look, God's going to judge the Amalekites. Run, go. Why, why that group of people? Well, that group of people, they're from the father-in-law of Moses. You remember him? That's, that's where these people from. They're from that. They were also the group of people that helped God's people as they are traveling through the wilderness. They were able to help God's people. God remembered. God remembers those who came against his people, but he also remembered those who blessed his people. And here, Saul is saying, go. We have another example of this in Sodom and Gomorrah. Even in God's justice, there is mercy. That God spared Lot. Also in Jericho, even in God's justice, there is mercy. God spared this prostitute named Rahab. God's justice is not perverted. Our justice is perverted. Even in his justice, we find great mercy. What is the application for us today? Friends, coming closer, we are not called to declare a holy war. No. This happened in the Old Testament. For us today as Christians, the only warfare that we are involved in is called a spiritual warfare. As Paul mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, this is the holy war for us. It's a spiritual warfare that we notice that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. We notice the schemes and the methods of Satan. We notice that the weapons of our warfare, according to 2 Corinthians, is not carnal, but it's spiritual. This is what we are called to do. So as we observe this passage of Scripture, we see the justice of God. We see the wrath of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the love of God. And for us today as Christians, we say that we're not in a holy war. We're not going to go ahead and annihilate all the people in Iran. Annihilate all the people in Afghanistan. Annihilate all the Chinese. Annihilate all the Russians, right? As Christians, we're not called to do that. What we're called to do is to proclaim the glories of God. That's what we're called to do. And what we're called to do is to put on our spiritual armor. That's what we're called to do. You know, this is what the book of Revelation mentioned. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And I love what Alistair Begg says here. Alistair Begg states, We are not called as Christians to engage in a holy war, the battles that we are fighting are spiritual battles. Spiritual battles. So as we observe this, as it might be problematic at first when we look at this passage of Scripture, we must understand the justice of God. The mind and the thoughts of God are way higher than ours, but yet God is executing his justice here. Not because the Amalekites were such good people. They were sinners before God. And we know what scripture says. God has the right to execute his justice. God has the right to judge. And here specifically for us, this is the application for us. God, we want to worship you and we want to call others to see who you are. What about the second point here? 
The second point, we see Saul's disobedience. Notice this, Saul's disobedience. Saul goes and he does partially what God calls him to do, destroy the Amalekites. And as he destroyed the Amalekites, he told the Kenites to go, to flee, and they flee. But here we notice what Saul does. He kept some of the goods and the king himself. But if you notice in the context of Scripture, seven times the verb to completely destroy is mentioned in chapter 15. God is very explicit here. Very much so. And consistent. Seven times in chapter 15, completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. And Saul does not do this. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless and devoted to destruction. And Samuel approached Saul here and notice what Saul said to Samuel. You see it in your own Bibles. In verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul and said to Saul, said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Are you serious here? This is comical. Here is Samuel coming and he's like, I, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. So much so that Saul built this monument for himself. Thinking that when Samuel comes to him, that Samuel would praise him. S Samuel would say good things about him. But that's not what's happening here, friends. It's almost too much for us to believe that Saul could say this until we remember how common it is for us to pat ourselves on the back for obeying our own commandments rather than God's. We're not guilty of the same thing at times. Our own little commandments that we made and we pat ourselves on the back and we say, God, you should make more people like me. But God, at least I, I, I followed this and I did this. So before we start casting stones at Saul, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing the same thing? Seven times God told him to utterly destroy, and yet Saul neglected God's commands. You know what he should have done? He should have allowed God's word to be a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. But Saul did not do this. He did not do this. His failure is evident in what he kept. And Jonathan was absolutely right when Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Because his father here is doing the same sin as Achan. What did Achan do? He kept the goods and God destroyed him. And here, Saul is keeping the goods. And what will God do? Reject him. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. The heart of Christianity and our fellowship with our Lord is about our dependency on Him. And the way that we show we are dependent on God, don't miss this, it's through our obedience to God. We must obey Him. We must follow Him. This is the secret to Christianity. 
This is the secret to having a vibrant Christian life. It's to obey Him, to believe His Word, to trust His Word. And when we find that we are disobeying God, to repent and continue to trust in Him. This is exactly what Jesus mentioned in John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So what exactly do we learn here? First, this is what Samuel is teaching us here. Samuel first points out that obedience to God involves keeping his actual commands. You get this. You must keep his actual commands. Where are his commands? In Scripture. So I, I've met Christians who say, you know what, man, I love God. I love people. I just don't believe his Bible. Yeah, the Bible is not God's word. The Bible is just things made by man. So, you know, I, I just believe what is right in my heart, and I just follow what is right in my heart. And I've had conversations with people, and you know what I tell them? The Bible says your heart is deceitful. <laughs> you cannot follow what your heart is saying. We need facts. We need truth. We need absolute truth. And it's the word of God. So we stand on the word of God. So when the word of God says divorce is a problem, it is a problem. Fornication is a problem. It is a problem. Slandering is a problem. It is a problem. You get it. It's crazy that preachers have to get up here and say these things when, when these things should be very basic for Christians. But no. We make those little laws for ourselves and we say, you know what, I, I can do whatever I want because God, God cares about me. God cares about my happiness. If I want to date someone who is not a Christian and the Bible says do not be unequally yoked and I still want to do that, God cares about my happiness, right? And if he cares about my happiness, who cares? This is what we begin to do as Christians, and when we deviate from the word just an inch, we find ourselves a foot away from God. God has given us his word, and we are called to obey it. What else do we have here? Saul's defense of his action reminds us that obedience to God requires unpopular actions. Do you get this? Sometimes being obedient to God is not easy. Many times it's Hard, tremendously hard, but yet we must trust him and obey him. What do we have here about Saul? Saul says to Samuel, look, look, I, I have kept the commands of God. I have done these things. I've done all of these things. But friends, come in closer, come in closer and write this down if you can. Selective obedience is not obedience at all. It is merely convenience. That's exactly what it was for Saul. It was convenient for him to keep all the goods, right? The good stuff, but burn and destroy the bad stuff, right? It is convenient for him. Saul was thinking about himself and not the glory of God. As a matter of fact, he told Samuel, look, look what the people did. They kept the good animals to sacrifice for the Lord. Like Saul, okay, at this point, you're thinking about the people? Do you remember chapter 14? Saul wanted the people to starve for his own glory. And all of a sudden, in chapter 15, you're going to tell me you're thinking about the people? He's not thinking about the people here. He's thinking about his own glory. 
He's thinking about himself. And this is why Samuel came against him. And third, Samuel answered Saul's objection by pointing out that obedience is the only thing that truly pleases the Lord. Do you get this? He's arguing about the animals that he had. Notice with me very carefully in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the uh, um, Amalek, or Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took on the spoil, sheep, oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord God in Gilgal. Now you would think that here he would repent, but he's not repenting. Not repenting at all. But notice the wise words of Samuel here. See for yourself in verse 22. He says this, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than fat of rams. What is he saying here, friends? He is saying here that the sacrificial system was never intended to function in a place of a person living an obedient life. Never. Saul see this. He saw this as, as you know, I'm sacrificing all these things to the Lord. The Lord must be happy, even if I partially obeyed him. But I'm actually sacrificing. I'm actually doing something good here. But we fall in the same pitfall as Saul. When we look upon our doctrines, when we look upon certain things that we're doing, the way we worship, when we look upon certain things and we say to ourselves, God, look, look how I'm doing these things correctly. Or, or I have some beautiful doctrines. You know, I'm an amil, or I'm a post-mill, or I'm a pre-mill. I, I believe in Reformed theology. I'm an Armenian. I'm, I'm the, and we say to ourselves in these little doctrines that we have that we are safe. But then we never live out those doctrines. Now, come in closer. Come in closer. I don't want you to miss this. Having sound biblical doctrines are important. It is very important. But you know what's even more important? To have these doctrines and to live out these doctrines. To have them and put them on your shelf and where you could just regurgitate these things will not save you. You know what God is pleased by? God is pleased with us having the right beliefs and living out those beliefs. Here we see a main issue with Saul. With what he was doing, I love what Richard Phillips states here. Don't miss this. God is worshipped when he is obeyed. You get this. Come in closer. Please pay attention to this. God is worshipped when he is obeyed. It is better for us to obey God than to perform songs and offer prayers in his behalf. Saul's real worship was indicated here by his behavior. Are you following God, Saul? Not your actions and sacrificing as many animals as possible, but are you following God? Are you obedient to 
God. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Coming closer. Just a little closer. And please get this. Pay close attention to this. Don't miss this, friends. Friends, insubordination and rebellion to God elevates self-will into a God. You get it. If you consistently have an attitude of rebellion and insubordination, you are elevating your self-will into a God itself. This is the plight of Saul. Let's avoid this. Let's avoid that. Are you consistently disobeying God? Making excuses over and over and over again. That's a major problem. And finally, finally, I want us to see this. I want us to see God's regret in verses 10 through 11. God's regret in verses 10 through 11. I think it was important for for me to show you Saul's disobedience. I want you to see, I wanted you to see how exactly Samuel reacted to Saul's disobedience. But notice God's word, what God said about himself when Saul disobeyed. In verses 10 through 11, especially verse 10, it mentioned God said, I regret making Saul king. Now, I want you to see this with me. Some people actually teach that God does not know future events. As a matter of fact, they believe that God learns about future events just like we do. So if we go through a very difficult time and we experience a difficult time, God did not know that beforehand. God actually is just figuring it out as you are figuring it out, is what they're saying. But there's a certain belief system that supports that. It's called open theism. And one particular writer, an author, who believes in open theism, this is what he stated here. I want you to, be, I want you to pay close attention to him. Greg, Gregory Boyd, he says this. God's regret proves that God was not sovereign over Saul's choices. And he writes, common sense tell, tells us that we can only regret a decision we made if the decision resulted in an outcome other than what we expected. So what he's doing here, he's saying God's regret is like our regret. So if you regret something, you are not aware of the outcome of it. So in other words, God is not aware of the outcome of events in our lives. Is he right? He is absolutely wrong. For several reasons he's wrong. One in particular is because of the attributes of God. What does scripture consistently say about God? He's all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign. If he is right here, then we, what's the point of pursuing Christianity? To follow a God who is not able to fight my battles and to lead me through the difficulties of my battles. I I serve a sovereign God who understands all things, who works all things according to the book of Romans for his good and my good. There's no doubt. As a matter of fact, 
Let's just see what the Old Testament says about this. Isaiah 46 verse 9, this is exactly what it mentioned. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. This is a God who sees all things, who knows all things. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Does this sound like a God who is not in control? Isaiah tells us that he's a God who is in control. Coming closer, the context of scripture here also tells us that God knows all things. Do not forget, in chapter 8, when the people came to Samuel to ask them, him for a king, he told them, God will give you a king, but he will take, take, and take from you. As a matter of fact, God prophesied and told him this exactly in chapter 8, verse 18. And in that day, you will cry out. What day? The day that Saul will be a king over you. And that day, you will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, for the Lord will not answer you in that day. Does that sound like a God who does not know? He knows. He told them all of these things will happen. As a matter of fact, he gave them a king that they would choose. So he chose Saul. Even in the choosing of Saul, we see God's sovereignty. That God allowed what? The donkeys of his father to stray away and a servant of Saul to say, there is a prophet, let's go to him. When he went to Saul, what did Saul do? Saul gave him three prophecies. Not one, not two, but three prophecies that points to the fact that God is in, is in control of future events. Three prophecies that did not happen then, but will happen in the future. So even in God picking Saul, we see that God is sovereign. Friends, he is sovereign. But what else can we learn about this passage of Scripture? I think the best commentary here to show us what does it mean that God regrets is Samuel himself in this chapter. So let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, notice what Samuel says. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. But it seems as if Samuel is contradicting what God said. As a matter of fact, he uses the same Hebrew verb here that God used in chapter 10, in verse 10. What exactly is Samuel saying here? Samuel is saying God's regret is not like our regret. We are human beings and we say to ourselves when we regret because we do not understand the outcome. God's regret here is specific. It is specific to do one main thing here. And that is to bring his people to respond. This regret is not God saying, well, I have no clue this is going to happen. What is this regret about? This regret is simply to do this. God often expresses repentance and sorrow in order to elicit a response that he desires from his audience. 
God is saying, I regret that I made Saul king. Whose fault is this? Whose fault is this? It's your fault. Your fault, people. You wanted a sinful king. You came to Samuel and asked for a king. I gave you what you wanted. And now I am saying you should regret it. You should regret that you made Saul king. You should regret that you went to Samuel and asked Samuel to give you a king when I was your king. Do you remember in chapter 8 when the people asked for a king? Samuel himself was moved with great sorrow. And God said to Samuel, Samuel, it's not against you, but it's against me. This regret is to show God's people one thing. That they were to respond with the same attitude as to say, God, we are before you. We are before you. We are before you. So what must we learn here, friends? As we close, I need you to see this with me. I need you to see this with me. As we observe chapter 14, verses 47 through 52, don't miss this. The last few verses of chapter 14, he ends kind of weird. Just kind of giving us more like an obituary of Saul, telling us about Saul's accomplishments, like his children, his grandfather, his father, all his children, his sons and his daughters. And he tells us how Saul conquered so many people and he fought against the Philistines. And then he transitions from that to Saul's disobedience. And I need you to get this because this is very important. Coming closer and write this down if you can. Friends, a person's life is finally assessed not by worldly achievement, but by its relationship to the Lord. This is what the narrator wants you to observe here. Chapter 14 ends with Saul's great accomplishments. And then chapter 15, we see God rejecting Saul. Perhaps some of us have amazing resumes in our lives, right? God, I've done this, I've done that, I have this, I've, I have all of these things in my life. But the question is, are you walking with Jesus? Are you walking with Christ? Do you also notice Samuel, his disposition here? When he found out the Lord regret, the text mentions that Samuel wept bitterly day and night. Do you understand why Samuel was crying? It's the same reason why we should cry. When people are not walking with God, when people are disobeying God, when people stray away from God, it should break our hearts like it broke the heart of Samuel. You get it. I stand here today and I look. I see brothers and sisters that used to worship with us and are no longer worshiping. And praise God if they're going to a biblical church but several of them are not even going to church. I'm not even going to church. We take that lightly, but we shouldn't. We should be up like Samuel day and night, praying and weeping for the souls of people. That people who had an opportunity to walk with Christ in great unity, but yet they're not. People who are not spending time with Jesus. That should break our hearts like it broke the heart of Samuel. As we observe this passage of Scripture, let us see the glory of God 
But let us also see the heart that we should have for men and people around us. Let's call them to repentance. Let's call them to trust in Jesus and worship Jesus. Join me as I pray for us. God, I am thankful for a passage of scripture like this. God, we see how beautiful you are. And the text saying that God regret is not God changing his mind, but it is to elicit a response from people. As Samuel gives us a great commentary, we should not look at God as one who changes his mind like a human being. As many open theists would say, God, we trust in you. This regret should be the regret of your people. It should have been the response of your people. It should have been exactly what they said to you, Father, that would bring about repentance. It should have been Saul's response, but he kept justifying himself over and over and over again. So God, I pray that God, we can say to ourselves, we regret. We have fallen short. We see our sins. And we come to a holy, merciful, loving, and sovereign God who cares deeply for us. So, Father, move in our hearts. Lead us and guide us. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen.